We're in Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look this morning at the parable of the lost son, or better known as the parable of the prodigal son. You can also think of alternate names like the parable of the forgiving father, or the father's joy over the returning lost son. In fact, this chapter is something I've called parables of God's joy. The, the emphasis here in this whole chapter is God's joy over sinners who repent. And as I said last time, it's not an attribute of God we focus on a lot. We think of God's grace and his love and many other aspects of his character. But how often do we reflect on God's joy? And we can be tempted to think of God as a begrudging grace giver or a, a smileless father, but he rejoices when we come to him in faith and repent. This parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, is only in Luke. And it's one of the best-known and best-loved parables. One commentator called it the most glorious of all parables. Another called it the most beautiful of all the parables. And this is known by people who otherwise wouldn't know much about the Bible. If you've mentioned a prodigal son, they might know what this is talking about. We even use that term, prodigal son, for wayward sons in our own day. Even things like killing the fatted calf and somebody who's back safe and sound. A lot of these terms we see in this parable we use in English nowadays. And this is Jesus' longest parable, and it's one that's rich in detail and emotion and in meaning. A lot of his parables, while instructive, may not touch a chord so much with us. People may not care so much about scattering seed in terms of uh, a personal connection, uh, say, with a farmer, even a sheep. Not everybody's a shepherd. But I think anybody can understand the, the father here and, and the sons and what they're going through and feel a, a deep sense of, of emotion as they consider what it was like to be in this fictitious family. Now, in this parable, usually when we look at parables, we think of one primary lesson, but in this parable, being so long, there are many lessons we can learn from it, many points we can make. But again, the overarching theme is the joy of the father over the returning son. Now, this word prodigal, for a word that we may have heard a lot, it's not often understood exactly what prodigal means. The word prodigal means wasteful or uncontrolled, somebody who just throws stuff uh, away, like this man throw, threw his money away, as we'll see shortly. So this prodigal son is a wasteful son. He has many things, and he wastes them. Now, background to this parable, look at the verse, verse 1 and 2 of Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. That's a great thing, right? The tax collectors and sinners, these people needed to hear Jesus, and they wanted to hear Jesus. They come to Jesus to listen to him. And yet, we see in verse 2, both the scribes or Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then he tells the parable of the, the sheep, the lost sheep, and the lost coin, and then he gets to the parable of the lost son. So the tax collectors and sinners draw near to Jesus to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes draw near to Jesus to grumble about him. So there's the difference in the heart attitude. But Jesus' point here in these parables is instead of grumbling 
remember that there is joy in heaven when sinners repent. Well, let's look at Luke 15, and I'll read verses 11 to 32, down to the end of the chapter. Jesus said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf. Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Well, back to verse 11, we have the prodigal's demand. Jesus said, a man has two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, we want to get a little bit of background of the laws of inheritance back then. And we see that a bit in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 21 Deuteronomy 21, in these days, a lot of the inheritance was property-based. You, you have your land in the promised land, your own portion that has been granted to you. And so you want to keep that in your family. And verse 17 of Deuteronomy 21, it has the background of a man who has two wives, and one's loved, the other's unloved. The unloved woman has a child first. That's the firstborn son of this man. The man can't give the first, the right of the firstborn to the son of the loved wife over the son of the unloved wife. And verse 17 says, But he, that is the father, shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. To him belongs the right of the firstborn. 
So the firstborn son would get a double portion of the inheritance. So if you had, in this case, in Luke 15, a man who has two sons, you give the first son an extra portion. So you divide it. You have two two sons. You divide your property into thirds, and the, the first son gets two portions, and then the second son gets a third. You can imagine if you had a lot of sons, you had ten sons, you would divide it up into 11 pieces, and the first son gets two two portions of the 11, and then you parcel it out over the, the rest of them. So that's the setting here. The, the younger son isn't going to get as much as the older son anyway, but he wants it now. <clears throat> and generally, though, the inheritance, like today, would come to the children after the father's death, or at least on his own initiative. We see Abraham doing this. He gives his wealth to his son Isaac and his other sons before he dies. But it wouldn't be right for the son himself to say, Father, give me the inheritance right now. The father could give it himself, but for the son to ask for it is an affront to his father. And notice here, he doesn't even say, please. He just says, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And the father gives it to him. In fact, gives it to his brother as well. We go from the prodigal's demand to the prodigal's debauchery. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. It says here, not many days later, this son doesn't waste any time getting his new money together and heading out. And he travels far away from his good father to start a new life. He wants a clean slate. and He's no longer stifled in doing whatever he wants to do. And he's like the the sheep in Isaiah 53, verse 6. He turned to his own way. And sometimes people fall into sin through weakness, but this man rushes headlong into it. He's intentional, he's willful, and he's foolish in doing so. And it says here, he squandered his estate with loose living. This word squandered here means to scatter. You can picture a young man nowadays who's flushed with cash and he has bills bulging out of his pockets and he just sort of passes money to wherever he, anything he wants to buy or anybody he wants to influence. He wants to buy friends. He wants to buy fun. He just spends his money and pours it out like water. He's throwing his money away. He squanders his estate with loose living. Doesn't invest it. Doesn't use it to buy his own business, start his own farm. But he squanders it. He just spends it until it's gone. He goes from debauchery to degradation. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly and would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. We know all too well that money flies away if you're young and don't have much money. When you get older and have more money, it goes away just as fast or even faster. Especially fast if you're a prodigal, if you're wasteful. And to top it off, besides this prodigality, there's a severe famine. The King James has this interesting translation. They call it a mighty famine. It's a, it's a strong famine. So that even if he had money to buy things, there's little food to eat. So first he's brought low by his, by his prodigality, his wastefulness. And then he's brought even lower by circumstances beyond his control, by this severe famine. And he's reduced to, it says in verse 15, to feeding swine. And this would have been shocking to the hearers. Assuming this is a Jewish boy, 
it's unthinkable to feed swine and worse to want to eat their food. They're, they were unclean animals to the Jews. I'm, I won't try and bring up a similar sort of picture in your mind of what it would be like in our day. You figure it out on your own. Think of the most disgusting job you can think of. That's what this young man was doing. And you can imagine the look on the faces of the people who heard this parable. That's, that's really gross to think of this, this boy having to feed swine and to long to fill his stomach with the paws the swine were eating. It says he would have gladly filled his stomach, or you could translate it, he was longing to fill his stomach. He desired, he really wanted this pig food. He's brought so low here that he's jealous of pigs. These pods here he's longing to eat are carob pods. I don't know much about them, but I saw some pictures and read a little bit about them. They look like large green beans or pea pods, pretty long things, and really mostly fit to feed animals. And my understanding is the poor might eat them when absolutely necessary, but it wasn't a delicacy at all. This is something that you would give to pigs, but you wouldn't want to eat yourself unless you absolutely had to. But it says here, no one was giving anything to him. It doesn't say he actually ate the pig food. It said he wanted the pig food, but he had nothing to eat. He had no compassion. No one wanted to help him, or maybe no one could help him. They had nothing to share. If you have severe famine, you're just trying to feed yourself. You don't have money for this poor foreigner, this this pig feeder. Well, the prodigal goes from a degradation to a decision. Verse 17 says, When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so we see here the beginnings of a repentant heart in this wasteful son. At first it's turned by his his stomach, his desires. It flips a switch in him. And maybe it's a purely physical desire, but it changes into a spiritual need. And we see, even in these few verses, keys of repentance that we can apply to our own lives. First of all, he has an awareness of his foolishness. The light bulb came on. It says he came to his senses, or he came to himself, literally. It's like he woke up. He's been in this sort of dream, this this stupor, this foolishness. Like he's uh, he's been living this, this past days, months, years, who knows. And he remembers his father's abundance. How many, he says, of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. The day laborers in his father's house were abounding with bread. You can imagine, okay, it's, they have these laborers the, he hires for the day, his father, and they come into lunch after a hard day's work, and there's bread and to spare. They have piles of bread at this table as they eat. And this young man's remembering that. I was at those meals. I saw those men eat, and they ate well. Those hired men, and I have nothing. What a fool I was to leave all that, even from a strictly material sense, just to feed myself. At least I could feed myself at my father's house. So the first step in his repentance is awareness of his foolishness. And next is a change in his direction. He says in verse 18, I will get up and go to my father. Now he's not wallowing in his misery, but he's going to the one who could get him out of his mess. Remember, if you're just sad over your sin, that's that's remorse only. It doesn't change anything. You can wallow in your sin, your self-pity, and say, oh, how miserable I am. But 
if you just sit there and are miserable, is that going to change your situation? No, you have to get up and do something to make a change. In this case, it's he needs to go back. He needs to get up out of the, the pigsty and go to his father, the one who can help him, the one who can show him compassion and mercy. So he's aware of his foolishness. He sees a change he needs to make in his direction. Next, he gives an acknowledgement of his sin. He says, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He doesn't say I was weak or it was just a mistake or it was suboptimal behavior, but it's sin. And he says here, I've sinned against heaven. That's a way the Jews sometimes use to speak of, of God. Like we might say, for goodness sake, instead of saying for God's sake, he would say against heaven means sinning against God. But it avoids using God's name in this case. And the son has disobeyed God. He realizes that. He's disobeyed God with his dissolute life and by dishonoring his father. Remember the commandment? Honor your father and mother. He's also sinned, he says, against his father. And he's sinned against his father in many ways, but especially by treating him as he has, by just treating him as a, a big ATM and shaming his good name. So this young man is aware of his foolishness. He wants to change his direction. He acknowledges his sin. He also has an attitude of humility. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's rehearsing these things in his mind. What is he going to say to his father? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He had repudiated his father and his family, and he had no right to come back as if nothing had happened and come back to his privileged position. Oh, he's humbled in his attitude. And finally, he has a commitment to service. He says, make me as one of your hired men. This young man has an unpayable debt now to his father. He's already spent his portion of the estate. He has nothing. His father owes him nothing. He's, he's, the father has done what he's supposed to by the Mosaic law. He's, he's given him his, his share of the inheritance. But now this young man doesn't say, Father, give me some money again. He says he will strive to do whatever his father wants him to do as a hired man or as a day laborer. Again, these day laborers were not part of the household. They were those who were hired by the day. And you might have a job today. You might not have a job tomorrow. As long as the, the, the owner of the estate had work, that's good for you. But if there's no work, you don't get any food. You don't eat. And these, these people who lived on subsistence wages, uh, they didn't have Social Security to, to, to rely on or, or handouts from the government. They, would, they could starve if they don't have work every day. Now, these day laborers had their freedom, but their security was more precarious. Again, if they didn't have work, they didn't eat. They were only paid when there was work to do. Now, slaves... And this society didn't have their freedom, but they did have more security because they were part of the household and it was responsibility of the, the master, the owner of that estate, to take care of the slave. So if you're a, a day laborer, you come for work for the day and you might eat your, your, your free lunch and then go home, a slave couldn't leave the household, but the, it was responsibility of his master to, to, to feed him and to take care of him. So, again, this, this young man doesn't even want... To, to even consider being part of the household as a slave, but make me as one of your hired men, just a man who can sort of be in your presence and be fed by you from time to time as I work for you. That's what he wants to do. The, the least possible thing he can ask from his father, he, he can't ask anymore. Asking even to be a slave would be too much, that'd be too much of a, a burden on his father, but just make me a hired man. Give me a denarius a day, please, father. Well, this young man has made his decision. He's going to go back to his father. But now we see the father's compassion. 
Verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This young man had left on his long journey away from home with his pockets full. In his best clothes and sandals, he was full of energy and ambition. And now he's crawling home in rags. He's barefoot with an empty stomach, gaunt, probably filthy, and wondering how his father will receive him. And the best he can hope for, as I said, was a menial job on the estate. But, verse 20, we have this wonderful, beautiful contrast. But, while he was still a long way off, something wonderful is about to happen beyond the hopes of this broken young man. But, while he was still a long way off, the father was looking and waiting for him. And this father never gave up hope that his son would return. He wasn't sitting in his accounting room looking at his books, grieving his lost money, but he was out looking in the fields waiting for his lost son. He didn't grieve the lost money, but he grieved the lost son. In this sentence, the end of verse 20, such, such an active sentence, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, this is almost a comical scene. It's an emotional scene, but also kind of funny too. Remember in these days, men didn't wear slacks. He wasn't wearing his running shoes and his, his jeans. He was a rich, older man, and so he had to pull up his robes to run. You can picture an old man in kind of a long dress, almost running to, to get his son. This man didn't care about his dignity. He loved his son. And his son was probably as repulsive as could be. He was disheveled, dirty, smelled like pig. But his father had never seen anything so beautiful in his life as his son coming back to his home. This man didn't need to hear, I'm sorry from his son. Sorry, I'm about to cry. <laughs> this man didn't need to say, here, I'm sorry from his son. Before the son spoke, the father was already forgiving him. The, the running, the compassion, the embracing and kissing came before the son was able to say one word. It says here, he embraced him. You might have a marginal note. It says he fell on his neck. It's a Hebraism for a, a big hug, very picturesque. We see this several times in Genesis. In Genesis 33, verse 4, when Jacob comes back to Esau, it says Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And later, in Genesis 45, verse 14, when Joseph finally meets Benjamin, after many years, Joseph fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. In Genesis 46, 29, and especially, now Joseph has missed his father all these years, and Joseph went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel, Jacob, and as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. So that's how we see this man meeting his son, falling on his neck, weeping for him, kissing him again and again and again, kissing his dirty, filthy face. And the father finally maybe takes a break for a moment to get, catch his breath. And the father has this overwhelming welcome, and the son now has a few words. He has his, his confession. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So he begins his rehearsed speech from the previous verses. And again, he has a humble confession of sin. But if you compare with what he was going to say, with what he did say, 
He didn't get to the point about saying, make me as one of your hired men. His father would have none of this, I am no longer worthy to be called your son stuff. He's going to stop him right there. And the father has to share his joy with everyone. His son is back. And so we get to the, uh, the father's celebration. Verse 22, the father said to his slaves, quickly bring up the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. It's kind of strange. Instead of responding to his son, the father speaks to his slaves. If I were going to do a a Bible trivia game and ask you, what did the father say to the prodigal son? What's the answer? Nothing. There's nothing in this whole story about the father actually speaking to his prodigal son. It's kind of kind of unusual. The prodigal speaks to his father. The father speaks to the slaves. The father and older son speak to each other. But the father never speaks directly in this parable to his son. But by his actions, he's speaking volumes to his son. The father wants his son to know that the past is past, and the father will make sure the son is cleaned up and brought fully back into the family. There's no recriminations. There's no lectures. There's no, we'll wait and see if you can behave. Maybe put him out in a shack for a while until he can prove that he deserves his father's love again. There's just unbridled joy and celebration for this man and his household. And this is a callback to the celebrations earlier in this chapter in the parable of the lost sheep. The man finds his sheep and lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, verse 5, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now, that's a great thing to find a lost sheep, but not really that exciting, perhaps. Verse 9, this woman finds her lost coin, her one of ten, and she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. She calls together her friends and neighbors and throws a party. Again, a lot of money, but really not that important in the big scheme of things. But for a man to receive his lost son, now that's something worth celebrating. And this man will do it in high style. The son here must have been wearing rags, maybe barefoot, but he gets the best robe, he gets a, a ring and new sandals. In this society, bare feet are for slaves, not for son of the house. Slaves would have bare feet, but the son of a of an estate would not wear bare feet at all. He needs a new robe, he needs a ring, he needs to have new sandals. And he says here, to the slaves, it's the slave's job to put these things on the son. The son is not going to be treated at all like a slave, like a hired man. He's going to be restored to his original place. He says here, the father says, this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He's still my son. He's not my servant. He's not my slave. He is my son. He was dead, has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And the father calls in verse 23 for the fattened calf. The wealthy people would keep such animals ready in case of a sudden special occasion. We see that in Abraham's time. We had uh, the Lord and the angels visited him and he was able to kill uh, a fattened calf or whatever the animal was in that case. You're ready to have visitors who just drop by. They they couldn't make a quick Costco run, could they? If you had to throw a big party on a spur of the moment, you had to have the food all all but killed, ready to go. And of course, you couldn't kill the calf ahead of time because you couldn't refrigerate it or freeze it. So they had a calf ready to go when something special happened, and what could be more special than the sun coming back? And it says simply at the end of verse 24, they began to celebrate. 
The misery that the father endured is lifted when he sees his son return. The misery the prodigal endured is lifted when he sees his father's unrestrained love. Neither of them may have had any happiness for a long time, but now they can celebrate. The time for mourning is over. It's now the time for celebration. Now, we might wish the parable stopped right here on this positive note, this celebratory note, like the other ones did. The other parables, the sheep and the lost coins, stopped at the celebration. But then we'd miss one of Jesus' key points in confronting the scribes and Pharisees from verse 2. Instead, the story ends on a negative note. And we see now the brother's criticism. The brother's criticism, verse 25. Now, the older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Verse 25 says, His older son was in the field. He was working diligently while everyone else was partying. And then he returned to his house and he heard the sounds of, of the celebration going on. What's happening here? And this man hears the good news from the, from the slave, one of the servants. The servant says, your brother has come. That's good news. He's back safe and sound. But this elder brother focused more on the first part. Your father has killed the fattened calf. Your father has celebrated because your brother came home. And what's his attitude? Instead of celebrating, he is angry. He's angry, it says. He became angry. He was stubborn. He was not willing to go in. Even after his father pleaded with him, come in, son. He was stubborn. He wouldn't go go in. He was also self-righteous. Verse 29 says, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. This term serving could be translated slaving. He's never neglected a command. He's like one of those earlier 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I've done all you wanted me to do, Father. I don't need to repent. And yet, uh, I, I have been slaving all this time and don't even get a, a calf. He is also... Um, insolent, isn't he? He says, look, for so many years I've done, he speaks to his father as he would to a uh, a strange child or something. He doesn't treat his father with the respect he deserves. He also has an attitude of jealousy and resentment. As I said before, he, you have never given me a young goat, and that's of lesser value than a calf. It's smaller than a calf. You haven't even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And no doubt this man's friends were more respectable young men than those that the younger brother had been consorting with. He's jealous. He's resentful of his younger brother. And then his, he also has an attitude of condemnation of his brother. He says his brother has devoured the father's wealth with prostitutes. And so just completely angry, bitter. And above all this, above all these attitudes, he has the attitude of joylessness. Joylessness. He was not willing to go into the place of celebration, even after his father pleads with him. There's a place to be married, to be joyful, and he would not enter that place. Now we look at who the focus of his anger is against. Who is his complaint towards? 
is towards the father. He's not so much angry at his brother, but at his father. You have never given me a young goat. Then we see his resentment again. He speaks of this son of yours. You parents ever, when your children misbehave, you speak to your spouse, said, your son or your daughter did this, right? So sort of putting the blame on somebody else. This son of yours, the son of yours has devoured your wealth. And you killed the fattened calf for him. How could you do that, Father? This was completely beyond the pale. This is ridiculous. This is wrong. And while the younger, repentant brother said, Father, I have sinned against you, the older brother says, in effect, Father, you have sinned against me. This older brother wants to celebrate with his friends, but he doesn't want to celebrate with his father and younger brother for an immeasurably more important reason. He'll have a party just to have a party, but to celebrate his brother's return, doesn't care about that. In fact, he's angry about it and won't go. And what does it show us? It shows us that while this brother, this older brother, remained at home and kept all the rules, he didn't love his father, or his brother for that matter. And at the beginning of this lesson, I call this the parable of the lost son, but it really could be the, called the parable of the lost sons, right? Both sons are lost. As one commentator says, the one son through the unrighteousness that degrades him, the other through the self-righteousness which blinds him. So this father has two lost sons. One son was far away, and one son was home all the time. The older brother was in the house with his father, but his heart was far away from his father. And this is exactly the attitude of the scribes and Pharisees from the beginning of this chapter. If they truly understood God, if they truly had God's heart, they would rejoice with him when sinners came to repentance. Instead, they complain and they rest on their service and obedience. These Pharisees and scribes could say, along with his older brother, for so many years, God, I have served you. I have never neglected one of your commands. And they think that's enough. Just keeping the law for them was enough in their mind to get a reward from God, but it's not enough. What's the greatest commandment? Right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. They may have kept a bunch of other smaller laws about what to eat, what not to eat, where to go, where not to go on, on Sabbath. But the one big law they missed, the greatest law, was to love God with everything they had. They didn't love God. They loved their self-righteousness. They loved their law-keeping, but they didn't live, love the law-giver. And of course, this also trickled down to disobeying the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. They may have loved their defining their neighbors as those who were closest to them, most like them, most self-righteous like them. They would love perhaps the other scribes and Pharisees, but did they love the lost? Did they love those who were coming to Christ to hear him, these tax collectors and sinners? They didn't. So they kept a lot of minor laws, but the biggest laws they missed. The two greatest laws they didn't keep at all. Well, the father has a response to this brother's criticism. Finally, he he gives a gentle rebuke to the brother's attitude. Verse 31. He said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. This is perhaps surprising. This father, with his kind treatment of this hard-hearted brother, 
if it was me, if I put myself in his father's position, I might have rebuked this son more harshly and said, get in there, put a smile on your face and start dancing. But he doesn't do that. He just tenderly entreats him. He says, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. You have no good reason to be angry or jealous. You have my presence and you have my provision. I'm here and I provide for you. You should be happy about that. This brother has said earlier, this son of yours, but the father here says, this brother of yours, this young man who came back is your brother. He is still your brother. And we had to celebrate and rejoice. We had to. That word in Greek is a strong word. It means we must. It was necessary for us to celebrate and rejoice. How could we not? Your brother was as good as dead, but we have him back. In fact, he's even better than before. Because now he is, he loves his family, he loves his father, and he's repented of his sins. We have here the same lost found theme as in the previous two parables. But this is something more important than a sheep or a coin. It's immeasurably more important than a sheep or a coin. This is a human life, and not just any life, not some random stranger, but it's a son's life, it's a brother's life. How can we not rejoice? And the Here the story ends on a cliffhanger, doesn't it? We don't know what the elder son would do. Does he repent? What what does he do? And there's differing ideas about why this is, but I think maybe this abrupt ending in the story is because the story in the real world isn't finished yet. The question is, what will the scribes and Pharisees do? Will they repent? Jesus is saying, in in a sense, it's up to you. You finish the story, you scribes and Pharisees. Will you finish the story by repenting and asking God for forgiveness for your self-righteousness, your anger towards these sinners who have come to me? Or will you continue in your hard-hearted hypocrisy and sin? Oh, we know how that ended, didn't we? The scribes and Pharisees on the whole are the ones who sent Jesus to the cross. They killed the one whom the Father had sent to give them the good news. So for these scribes and Pharisees, the ending is a bad one, isn't it? They would be assigned to a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth because they did not receive the one God had sent. And they didn't have the love of the Father, the love of God's people in their hearts. And so for us also, as we think about the end of this story, how will we end our story as regards the prodigal son? We can ask ourselves, are we one of these sons? Are you a, a prodigal who's far away? Well, the fact that you're here in church tells me you're probably not far away. Uh, physically, anyway, but those who are prodigal, who have walked away from their father, you can come back to him and he will receive you with open arms, with great joy. But while you may not be a prodigal far away, you may be a prodigal near to home. You may have the heart of a prodigal. You may be in your heart desiring something out there, something that's that's wicked, that's unrighteous, and Maybe only your parents' constraints or, or something else is holding you back, but your heart, your desire is the lust of the world. You want to be out there. You would follow the, the prodigal if you were able to. Well, if you're that sort of person, learn the lesson of the prodigal son without the hard, bitter, personal experience. Some of you yourselves may have been prodigal. You may have had a prodigal son or daughter or, or, or friend or relative. And while God teaches us things through these prodigal moments, you'd rather not have to learn the lesson that way. 
And if you can avoid a life of of heartache for a time and of, of great sin and, and despair, discouragement, even shame, if you can avoid that, do that now. Repent and, and fall on your loving Father's neck and ask for forgiveness. Or maybe you're one of the you're the son who is at home. You're doing all the right things, but you're actually far from God. You check all the boxes, you keep all the rules, and yet you don't really love your father. Maybe you grumble when sinners come to faith in Christ. Now remember from this chapter that God loves it when sinners repent and turn to him. All heaven sings. All heaven celebrates when someone is saved. And if God rejoices when sinners repent, how can we do any less? And if you have the attitude of the elder brother, like those people are too unworthy to be saved, then you don't understand grace. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. The most righteous person who ever lived, excluding Jesus, the most righteous person who ever lived, whoever that was, is a sinner who needs God's grace. But God's grace can cover, the, in the world's eyes, the, the most righteous person and the most unrighteous person because we all need Christ. And if you come to him, no matter how degraded a sinner you are, God will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. He will welcome you back with open arms and celebrate with you. But wherever you are, if you're the unrighteous younger brother or the self-righteous older brother, you can repent and find forgiveness with your Heavenly Father. That's why Jesus came, didn't he? Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And if you're lost, come to Christ and he will let you be found. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We also have in this chapter the theme of death and life. My son was dead and is now alive. Ephesians 2 speaks of our spiritual death this way. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Does this sound like the prodigal son? Exactly what he was doing. He was living in the lusts of his flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were all by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And now we have again this great contrast. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and have raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we were all dead in in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together. And it's interesting to see some parallels here and thoughts between Ephesians 2 and the the story of the prodigal son in uh, Luke 15. We have the death, we have the life, we have the one who's indulging his flesh. But God, being rich in mercy, gives great things to his his children in verse uh, verses 4, 5, and 6, even 7 of Ephesians 2, just like the father in the prodigal son story elevated his son. If God were, when he to save us, just give us a little shack on the outskirts of heaven, would that be more than we deserve? Definitely. If the father had, in the story, the prodigal son had given his son a shack on the outskirts of the estate, would that have been more than he deserved? Definitely. But it says here, 
that we are not given a shack in heaven, but we are raised up with Christ and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly place, with, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are with Christ Jesus himself, with God the Father. And God is going to make us trophies. Verse 7, he's going to show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The son, the prodigal son, became a trophy of the father's love in his, his best robe, his ring and his sandals. And God does the same thing for us, spiritually speaking. He gives us a new righteousness in Christ, and he will elevate us as trophies of his grace forever in heaven. So if you are a prodigal, whether you're at home or away from home, repent, believe in Christ, and these riches from the Father will be yours. For God is rich in mercy, and he loves to save sinners. Listen to Psalm 103, verses 10 to 14. It says that God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, he is mindful that we are but dust. Commentator Charles Simeon says this when the, long, the lost repent and return to God. Even the vilest sinners find their hopes not only realized but far exceeded. They come for pardon and obtain joy, for deliverance from hell and get a title to heaven. Their utmost ambition is to be regarded as the lowest of God's servants, and they are exalted to all the honors and happiness of his beloved children. So let's turn to the Father for love and grace if we need it this morning. We all need it, don't we? One last thing, just to close. I think a lot of us have prodigal children or brothers, sisters, friends. Don't give up hope. This father didn't give up hope for his son. He kept watching. He kept waiting. And we ourselves must keep watching and praying, ready for the return of the prodigal and ready to celebrate. Let's keep that hope alive as long as there is hope because God is a God of hope. Let's close in prayer. Father, we rejoice to see your joy in the salvation of sinners. We even get emotional seeing this man, this father, in this parable, weeping, embracing his son and welcoming him back after all the son had done to shame his father. The father discards that. He forgives immediately. He sees the son wretched, dirty, filthy. And you do the same thing for us. You receive sinners. You clean us up. You give us robes of righteousness. You welcome us into your home, not as slaves or servants, as hired men, but as sons. And we rejoice in that fact. We relish that. We thank you so much that you are a God of mercy. We don't deserve any of it. Even those of us maybe who have never in a sense, been prodigal in, in, in the sense that this man was in the story. We are all sinners worthy of your judgment, of your condemnation. May we not be like the elder brother who's self-righteous and condemns others, but loving those who are listening to Christ. May we, any of us here who don't know you or who have wandered, may we all come back to you repentant, seeing their foolishness, acknowledging sin, turning to the Father for forgiveness and willing to serve you, wanting to serve you. We pray for those who we know, even this morning, who are 
wayward, who are prodigal, and we can despair at times. It may have been years we've been praying for them, and they still resist you. They still are far away. Their hearts are still hard. Whatever it takes, Father, whether it takes a, a time in a pigsty, longing for pig food, whatever it might be that will lead them back to you. Many of them have heard the gospel for years. They, they grew up in church. They know the truth and yet have resisted it. They've walked away from it. We pray that even now you'd open their hearts to remember the things that have been taught them, even as little children. To see their need for a Savior, to see their foolishness, their their debasement, and turn to you, to love you, embrace you, and would you wash them and clean them up, bring them into the fold, they can be trophies of your grace forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.